As we continue in this season of prayerful worship today, um, it's with gratitude that I can invite you to pray with me. On a weekend that is significant to many of us, that our society has set aside as Father's Day, and I've over time had something of an ambivalent relationship as a church leader about how to address this, recognizing just how complicated uh, these sorts of opportunities really are. Um, as a father, I realize how complicated it is. Nothing but joy and pride as I look at my children and as I pray often enough, please don't let me screw this up. And also recognizing the many moments of regret that I feel of choices unmade, words unspoken, or things that I've done that I wish I could undo in their lives. Maybe you feel the same. For some in this room, this is a reminder of a loss that cannot be replenished, of someone you love who is no longer with you. For others, it may call to mind difficult upbringings, difficulties that have gone unreconciled. And for others, joy and abiding appreciation for people who maybe even beyond your own flesh and blood, men who invested themselves in your life to make you who you are and teach you the gifts of character and virtue and love and faithfulness. Above all, an opportunity comes to us on weekends like this to turn to scripture and hear one of the images that resonates deeply with me in his first letter John writes in chapter 3 these words, an ode of appreciation for how God has called us together. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And with the boldness, with the frankness, with the honesty and innocence of children. Let's go before God in prayer. Almighty God, you, even more than we, know what this past week has been and what next week might hold. For some of us in this room, it has been sunshine and light and delight in gratitude, looking at new pages that have turned and new opportunities that have come to us. For others among us, it has been a hot mess. And we barely found our way through. We bring it all together before you today. Grateful that there is one relationship in our lives where we hold nothing back but in pure vulnerability and openness welcome the loving embrace that comes from you. And no matter where we have been or what we have done or what has touched us, that in this privilege of prayer, you welcome the voices and the joys, the thanks and the concerns of your children. We thank you for loving us and for showing that love in Jesus Christ in whose death and in whose resurrection we are offered an invitation to an abundant and eternal life. We confess today that 
we have so often been our own enemies. And in following our own ways and the ways of this world, we have departed in sin from the path to which you have called us. Forgive us and call us back to joyful obedience to your will and to your word. That we might shine light in this world that is so dark and needs to know of your love and your saving grace. May that grace be on our lips and in our hands. May it fill and overflow from our hearts so that those who meet us would know that we are different, not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done for us. And that we, taking no credit for ourselves, can more purely reflect your goodness and your grace, even in the hardest of times. Be with all those on our hearts and in our minds who need your special care. Assure them of your presence and your companionship and your love and propel us by your Holy Spirit to be ministers of grace and mercy and compassion and love into hurting lives that we might together find that there is in you healing for even the most hurting of hearts. May it begin today as we hold ourselves uncomfortably and openly before you to hear your word, to receive its challenge, its rebuke, its comfort, and its hope. May it be so. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Psalms 137, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept. When we remember on the willows there, we hang up our harps and bear our captors, ask us for songs, and our ass saying, sing one, no, sing us one of the songs of how could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forgive you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand, let my tongue cling to the root of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against thee, Edom, the day of Jerusalem fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter, you, happy should they be who pay you back. What have you done for us? Happy should they be who taken your little ones and dash them against the rock. Good morning, adults. Thank you, Marley and Karen. Um, I would encourage you to have Psalm 137, our text today, uh, pulled up as we go through it together. And we'll start here with a picture. Yeah. So, actually, I'm, I'm not going to talk about this one. This is, if you know Rich, our former pastor of our sister church, Mount Hermon, um, good friend of mine, he's trying to create an AI version of myself that can deliver sermons with my tone of voice and my inflection and my humor and all that stuff. Um, but I want to waste your time. I decided not to talk about that. So this is a little, you can wonder what this means. We'll actually go to the next slide. Yeah, this is a place called Christ in the Desert Monastery. And it is a monastery in the desert in New Mexico. And I've been there uh, a couple times. I went uh, once in seminary as part of a wilderness theology class. And I went in more recent years uh, on kind of a, just a personal spiritual retreat. And it is a life-changing place. Now, when I say life-changing, I need to clarify what that means. Sometimes in matters of faith, when we say life-changing, we mean that in instantaneous kinds of ways. You experience something and instantly your life is transformed. That's not what happened here. Um, there were no moments of worship where I felt goosebumps and emotions and that mountaintop thing and felt close to God in that way. Not to discredit that kind of experience, but that's not what happened here. 
I also didn't hear a sermon that clarified something or made a spiritual point in such a great way that I finally got it and lived differently. Um, there are no sermons here, not to discredit that, but that's not what happened. I also didn't serve someone less fortunate than myself or help someone less fortunate than myself and feel good and feel a connection to God. As great as that is, not to discredit that, uh, that didn't happen here either. You can go to the next slide, Jay. Um, this was a pony that I found out was wild, and uh, the monks said, the ponies are wild, they're dangerous, um, don't interact with them. And they said, if you've been interacting with the ponies, and I said, what ponies? Um, this was, they don't, yeah. Uh, this place was life-changing in the rhythm that it, it provided. Um, this was a Benedictine monastery, and St. Benedict was a monk who lived a long time ago, and he was remembered for his rule, uh, a manual, policies and procedures of how best to live in community best, based around the life and ministry of Jesus. And it's still followed in Benedictine monasteries today. The rule covers a lot of stuff, but one of its key features is the way time is spent. When you're at a Benedictine monastery in your waking hours, one-third of your day is work, one-third of your day is rest, and one-third of your day is prayer. And that stands in stark contrast to the way life is here, where work and rest and prayer are all out of balance. And even when they're healthy, the things that we do aren't good. Work can become hurried and frantic. Uh, we can overwork, uh, not because it's our job, but because we have something to prove. Or we work long hours to distract ourselves from feelings that we're going through. Um, work can become flustered and panicked. Um, rest, as, as a result, is not really rest. Sometimes rest looks more like zoning out scrolling through our phones, uh, zoning out watching TV, um, gorging ourselves with unhealthy food to distract us from our real problems. The girls mentioned, I was talking about this last night, this week I don't know what happened, I was just watching TV and I accidentally ate, uh, Ruby said it was a party-sized bag of Doritos all by myself, so. <laughs> not to brag, but um, yeah, rest is not rest, and then prayer, of all the things in life, spiritual matters can run the risk of being the most formulaic. We can check our spiritual boxes. I went to this service, I did this project, I've checked it off. Um, you can go to the next slide. So at a, at a Benedictine monastery, that rhythm is, is life-changing, not in the moment, but once you see what a third of your day being rest, a third of your day being work, and a third being prayer, uh, it creates a rhythm that is very eye-opening. And, and the great thing is that's not confined to a monastery in the desert in the middle of nowhere. It's easily translatable here. Now, particularly striking about this rhythm is the way worship is engaged. At, at a Benedictine monastery, worship is based around the Psalms. And in a given week, you gather in a space uh, like this, um, you encounter all 150 Psalms. Some of them you sing, some of them you pray, some of them you read, some of them you study. And the way you encounter particular Psalms changes uh, each week. But every week, all 150 Psalms. And when you do that, you realize how deep and wide and vast the psalms are. Now, this particular week, the last time I was there, we sang Psalm 137, the, the psalm that Karen just read. We sang that in worship. And I'd never sung words like that as a devotion act to God. Particularly this phrase, happy shall be they who take your little ones, your children, and dash them against the rock. I had never sung anything that harsh uh, in worship. So later that week, I was working in the garden with Brother Christian. Uh, by the way, at this monastery, they, um, they grow a lot of their own food because they're so remote, so work is very important or they starve. Uh, I was in the garden with Brother Christian, and I said to him, 
What is going through your mind when you sing these violent and raw and angry words as a prayer, as an act of worship to God? And Brother Christian answered with a very metaphorical thing. He looks me in the eye and he said, I look at it like this. The rock is Christ, and we are to dash our sin, our very selves, against that rock. I responded to, to this answer in the way I think any of us would. Looking a man in the eye who had given up everything to follow Jesus. As an aside, you can't just walk up to a Benedictine monastery and say, hey, sign me up, where, where's my room? You have to apprentice for a year, usually two, sometimes longer, live that lifestyle for a couple years, remote, disconnected, give it up everything. At the end of that two-year period or longer, if you really want to do it, you take your vows. And the second you take your vows, everything is gone. If you owned a house, it is sold. If you owned a car, it is sold. If you have a bank account, it is drained. All those proceeds go to the poor, and you don't own anything. Even the robe you wear, the clothing you wear, is property of the monastery. Your room does not belong to you. Your cell where you read and pray does not belong to you. You literally own nothing. You've given up everything to follow Jesus. So when Brother Christian answered my question, I looked him in the eye, looking at this man who had given up everything to follow Jesus. And this is how I responded. You are wrong. Yeah, that's not a good answer. Um, Brother Christian and I spent a lot of time gardening that week. Um, he later found out that I was Baptist, and he said, that's why you argue about the Bible so much. Um, and I responded, no, we're not that kind of Baptist. You know, we're not fundamentalists. We ordain and celebrate women in ministry. We had a long conversation about that with this Catholic monk. and um, It was a great conversation, and um, Brother Christian and I uh, became great friends. We spent a lot of time together that week. But the question remains, what do we do with this text where someone is so angry they want to kill children? Um, it's one thing to sing that in worship, but what do we actually do with that? It may be helpful um, to start with uh, the context here. This is a, uh, an, an exilic or a post-exilic psalm. That's an unnecessarily complicated way of saying this was written during the exile or after the exile. Uh, seminary, I'm convinced, gives ministers a lot of impressive sounding vocabulary words so that we can feel as smart as lawyers or doctors. For example, you can't say, hey, here's a letter from Paul. You have to say, this is a Pauline epistle. I find it funny. Um, in the same way, saying this is an exilic or post-exilic just means it was written during or after the exile. Of course, the exile being this big moment in Israel's history where Babylon, who are mentioned in this text, come in, they destroy Israel, they kill a bunch of Israelites, they kidnap others. So if you're an Israelite who survived this event, you likely watched many of your family and friends be killed or kidnapped and carried away and you don't know what happened to them, which may be worse, or you were carried away and your family that survived was left behind. That's the situation the psalmist is in in this text. And it starts off with, with some extreme cruelty. Their, their captors ask them to sing a song. Hey, you know those songs where you talk about how God provides for you and God protects you and God loves you? We took everything from you. Why don't you sing one of those songs about God right now? This is torture. Moving down the line, they see they don't want to forget the promised land. One of the, the big deals with the exile was not just that people were killed, as, as challenging as that is, but they lost the promised land. So much of the Old Testament is about God's promise to the Israelites through the promised land. They wandered the desert for 40 years in anticipation of it. They fought for it. They defended it. They prospered in it. To lose the promised land would be to lose your connection to God. 
to lose a big part of your spiritual and cultural identity. And Babylon knows that and taunts them here. And of course, moving down the text, they lament that they don't want to forget the promised land. They're essentially saying, God, please don't let us forget you while we are suffering, while we are being tortured, while we are away from our home. The Edomites get mentioned later in this text. They get called out specifically. The Edomites were not Babylonians. They were cousins of the Israelites. The Israelites, of course, were descended from Jacob. The Edomites were descended from Esau, Jacob's brother. So they were cousins. And they faced a similar situation with Babylon. They were just as vulnerable to Babylon's attack. But instead of siding with their cousins against a common enemy, they sell out and help the enemy, likely giving them intimate knowledge of how Israel was defended and fortified, making the assault that much more deadly. It is one thing to be hurt by an enemy that's a stranger. It is another thing to be hurt by someone that you know, likely someone that you love. Some of you may know that a new thing in my life the last couple of years is that I consistently drive below the speed limit, uh, which that is its own life-changing thing when you know you're not going to be in a hurry in the car. Uh, talking to some of the children here, I know the language that gets used in the car among some of our adults. Driving slow really cancels that out, but not all the drivers uh, on the road agree with this philosophy, and many of them will pass me and they will flash the speed limit. They'll say, hey, buddy, it's 45 or it's 55, and some of them try to tell me that it's one. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and, and their insult hurts, hurts for the moment that it happens, but I never think about it again. And yet, there are things that were said to me from people that I love and care about five, 10, 15, 20 plus years ago that still come up every now and then, and they hurt just as much as when they were said. When people that we know and love hurt us, it stings a little bit more. And that's what's going on here with the Edomites. The Israelites have been betrayed and hurt by people that they know, by strangers. It, it can't get much worse. And so at the end, I'll read it in verse 9, we get this really angry line. Happy shall, be, happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. They want revenge. They are hurting. Perhaps... They lost their children in this way, and they want to see it paid back to their captors. So that's the context here, but, but what do we do with this angry, desperate, confused cry to God? Some people like to hold this text up as a mirror and say, who are we in this text? Are we more like the captors, or are we more like the victims? If we're honest, any look at Scripture, we can tell that more often we are closer to the enemies of God than God's people. If you remember, Israel's story started when they were slaves in Egypt, and God delivered them. The Egyptians were the biggest superpower in the world at the time. They had all the military power, government power, arts and culture, technology, and the Hebrew people had nothing. And so in choosing between those two people, God doesn't choose the Egyptians, the superpower, the great people. God chooses the humble and meek Hebrew people. Now, who are we more like in this congregation? Do we resemble the powerful, wealthy, culturally elite Egyptians? Or do we resemble the Hebrew people who had nothing? When we read this text, are we closer to the captor or to the victim? Of course, in the New Testament, we know that Jesus' biggest enemies were religious people, people who wanted to hold on to power to preserve the temple of their day, to have an easy answer for everything. And his followers were sinners and tax collectors, which group do we more resemble? So in this text, we need to reflect, how have we hurt people or withheld help when others needed it? Have we ever hurt someone in such a way that they would cry out with this level of anguish? At the same time, it's helpful to read this knowing that when we have gone through difficult times, 
God is not afraid of what comes out of our mouth. The pastor of my home church said, if you're upset with God, tell God. God is not afraid of your argument. I like that understanding of this text to read it as a mirror. But going one step further, I think a helpful way to read this is not what it teaches directly, but what does its mere existence teach to us? This is our holy book. This is how we are to follow God, to be people of faith, to understand what it means to believe. And we have a violent text like this in it. And it's not alone. People who are smarter than me notice that the, the psalms tend to fall into similar categories. There are psalms of praise. These psalms often begin with the phrase, praise the Lord, or they contain that phrase. There are royal psalms, coronation psalms, that describe God in kingly government language, God being a king on a throne. There are thanksgiving psalms that talk about thanking God. And of course, there are psalms of lament. Psalms of lament are where people are hurt or confused or angry, and they bring those feelings raw and unfiltered to God. They ask questions like, how long, O Lord, will you keep silent forever? Or, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quoted that one, Psalm 22. And of course, this one, happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against a rock. Now, the interesting thing about Psalms of Lament is they are just as numerous as Psalms of Praise, Psalms of Thanksgiving, Royal Psalms, but you would never know that in church. We don't explore these. We don't celebrate them. We don't study them. That's not a passive-aggressive slam against Mackenzie or Keith or Ted or Christopher or this church. Don't worry. It is a passive-aggressive slam against every church. Why don't we study these? What are we so afraid of? I think these texts are a call to honesty, to an honest element in our faith. And I think sometimes church encourages a somewhat indirect version of honesty, of dishonesty. Now, I don't want to go into examples to save some time here, but there is a general sense that we're at church, pull it together. Anyone who's ever brought a child to church has said a phrase like that, pull it together, we are in church. And yet it was Jesus who said that we should be like little children. There's an indirect form of dishonesty that I think all churches practice. We are not free to cry out in this way. I'm not proposing that we come in here unfiltered and just let it loose, but I think we've gone the opposite extreme. Don't share anything that will make people uncomfortable. This is a call to honesty. Some of my most helpful moments in faith development have come from honest conversations. My youth minister, who I've talked a lot about a lot, got in trouble for being too honest with his students. He would say that often that being a Christian is hard and he wasn't, sometimes he's not sure if he wants to do it anymore. In the moment, I didn't really appreciate that, but years later when life became difficult, it was very encouraging to know that my mentor, the person who made me believe, had struggled and that it was okay. Mr. Rogers, who I also talk about quite a bit, um, he was criticized for his honesty with children he was teaching to preschoolers, and he would talk about death and divorce and other difficult things. Fun little trivia here, his first week on the air, when they weren't sure the show was going to make it, and this is what he led with to show them it was a good idea. Does anybody know what the subject matter of Mr. Rogers' first week on the air was? It was the Vietnam War. Kids love it, right? Um, but he knew this was happening in the world, and nobody else wants to talk to kids about it, so he wanted to be honest with them. And he celebrated years later as a, a children's minister, even by people uh, who are secular. And his honesty was a key part of his ministry to children. 
I think sometimes, though, the church prefers simple answers for something called bumper sticker theology, this idea that the answer to life's questions can be found on something that will fit on a bumper sticker. Everything happens for a reason. God has a plan. When God closes a door, God opens a window. Those aren't necessarily theologically awful, depending on how we interpret them, but we realize just how unhelpful they are when something tragic happens. Those don't answer any questions. They don't help at all. And that's why Jesus didn't speak in that way. Jesus never gave a yes or no answer to a question. He always told a parable. Parables need to be explored. They need to be interpreted and reinterpreted. They are a call to honesty as well. Now, we had graduation Sunday this morning in the attic, and we celebrated our seniors who are here. And um, it's been hard, right? I feel like this group, COVID, took the most away. Some of our other groups, they had a lot of good years, and then their last couple were gone. But COVID took away the heart of many of these current seniors' youth ministry and church experience. And uh, in that time, the church gave them simplified answers. I know a lot of these students are dealing with issues at their school of racism, and the church just said racism doesn't exist. COVID was really hard, and the church often said COVID's not that big deal. Most people survive. Gun violence, sexuality, cultural issues, the church has preferred to give a simple answer rather than listen to these students as they struggle. The Psalms of Lament are a call to be extremely honest with who we are. And I, I hope that our, our seniors can hear that. My simple answer for you all, and I apologize for this upstairs, as we came back from COVID, nothing that we tried worked. It was awkward, and, and, and my simple answer was to just try less. You can't get hurt if you don't put yourself out there. That was my simple answer, and I apologize for that. Psalms of Lament encourage us not to take this simple answer. The good news is, though, is the church is not limited by our simplicity. God is bigger than our church services. God is bigger than the awkwardness of the pandemic. And my hope is that we don't confine God to our youth experience here or to my leadership, good or bad, as it is. The Psalms of Lament call us to a bigger picture of God. To wrap up here, one of the, the sure signs that none of us simplify faith is to reflect on how we learned the faith to begin with. I'm going to assume that everyone here is like me and that you learn the faith not through somebody reading you a list of what the faith is, but you learn the faith by observing somebody love you and care for you and forgive you and nurture you, and that can't be summed up in a bumper sticker. To steal a phrase again from Mr. Rogers, he talked about people who loved us into being. So I'd like to spend 15 seconds, and, and I will watch the time, as a way to understand just how unsimple faith is. I want us to reflect and find someone in your head, someone who has loved you into who you are, someone who has shown you the faith through forgiveness, through service, through kindness, through grace, and reflect on that person. 15 seconds of silence, starting now. Amen.